Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of that which we know, and bear witness to that which we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you of earthly things, and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you of heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. <clears throat> but whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. May God add his richest blessing to this. The reading of his holy, his inspired, is an errant word. Let's pray. Gracious God, our Heavenly Father, we do praise you for your word. You have given us that word which is able to make us wise unto salvation. And we would turn to you, the author, as holy men of old spoke 
as they were borne along by the Holy Spirit to give us your word written. And so we pray that the same Holy Spirit who so inspired John, we pray for his presence. We pray for his ministry to give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to receive your word and grace to apply it to every area of our lives. First and foremost, for your glory, but indeed also for our good. We ask these things in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. I want to take as a text this morning the 16th verse of John chapter 3 as the basis for our message. Now we'll make reference to other verses in this passage. We'll make reference to other verses in both the Old and the New Testament. But as the basis of our message this morning, I want to take that 16th verse of John chapter 3. If you grew up in the church, if you attended Sunday school, if you were part of a youth group, if you heard sermons preached, I would say it's safe to say you know John 3.16. John 3.16 is perhaps one of the best known verses in all of Scripture. And indeed, it is a verse that many people have memorized. And I imagine if I went around the room this morning, there are a number of you who could stand and who could say John 3.16 from memory. And perhaps you memorized it even as a child. And I would venture to say there are probably some small children here today who could stand up and who could say this verse from memory. John 3. 16. It's one of those verses that perhaps we know by heart, and it's one of those verses that we know it so well that we assume perhaps that everybody else knows John 3.16. Well, there was a football game played in 2009 for the college championship, and there were two teams. There were the Florida Gators, and there were the Oklahoma Sooners, and the quarterback for the Florida Gators was a man by the name of Tim Tebow. Tim Tebow was an outspoken Christian for his faith, and he bore witness to his faith in a number of ways. But one of the ways in which he did it was he would take the eye black patches that he wore under his eyes, either for the glare of the sun or the glare of the lights, those black patches, and on the one on the left, he would write the name of a book of the Bible, and on the one on the right, he would write the scripture reference, the chapter and uh, the verse. Well, for this college championship game, he wrote on this one, John, and on this one, he wrote 3, colon 16. And he did so because he wanted to bear witness of his Christian faith. Well, did everybody know <clears throat> what John 3, 16 was all about? Evidently not. One source I read said that there were over 90 million hits on the search engine looking to find out what John 3.16 was all about. Imagine that. I know of no preacher who ever said to 90 million people, will you please open your Bibles 
and look at a verse in the Bible. And yet, because he had that, 90 million people, some perhaps who knew it, some who had to be reminded of it, but for some, some, they perhaps were looking at it for the very first time. One, one verse, one verse. I grew up in a family of five. I'm glad I grew up in a family of five. There were four of us, one voice, and there was one girl. My sister passed away in 2018. <clears throat> a couple of years uh, before she passed away, she had gone to the funeral home and she had sat down with the funeral director and they had gone over all of the details uh, that were to be followed when uh, her funeral was held. She did that so that nobody would... Uh, have to worry about the details and the arrangements. She had gone and sat down with the funeral director, and evidently they went through a questionnaire, and uh, he was asking her questions about this and that. What do you want as music? Where do you want to have a service? Who's going to do the service? And so on. Well, there was evidently one question there that was for uh, the little folder that they sometimes hand out at funerals, and those uh, folders usually have some information about the deceased, and uh, you have perhaps the obituary and things like that. But usually on the inside or on the back, you will find a scripture passage. It might be Psalm 23. It might be Psalm 121. It might be assorted verses from John 11 or John 14 or Romans 8 or 1 Corinthians 15, a, a passage of scripture that people can read. And meditate on. Well, evidently, when they came to that question, my sister didn't give a passage. And as I was looking over the copy that was at the house uh, that the funeral director had given her, uh, I noticed that she had one verse. And that verse is the verse that you and I are considering this morning, and it is John chapter 3. Verse 16. Well, you can go and you can make your plans, but who is it that said, I think it was Burns that said, the best laid plans of mice and men have often gone awry. And the thing that went awry with her plans was that the person, the minister she had to do the funeral had moved. And so my nephew asked, would I do the funeral? And I said I would, and as somebody who knew my sister for 70 years, certainly I could speak about my sister, I could do the part of the eulogy. But as a minister, what would I use as a text? What text would I use to speak to our family and to her friends to bring hope and peace and comfort at such a time? And I thought about that. And I settled on one verse. The verse that we're considering this morning. John 3.16. I saw a video on YouTube. And in this video, there were three men. And they were all in their 90s. One of them was Billy Graham. The other two were his team members from over the years that he had held evangelistic crusades. Cliff Barrows, his song director, and George Beverly Shea, 
his solos. And in this YouTube, Cliff Barrows was asking Billy Graham some questions. And he said to him, what's your favorite text to preach on? Now, Billy Graham started his evangelistic uh, ministry back in 1947. He preached in many countries. He preached uh, uh, to many people in different languages through interpreters. He preached from many texts in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. But when he was asked that question, this is what he said. You know where this is going, don't you? John chapter 3, verse 16. And it said that when he would go to a place to have an evangelistic crusade, early on in the crusade, he would preach a message based on this passage of Scripture that we're looking at today, this verse of Scripture. One verse. One verse for a Christian athlete to communicate his faith. One verse for a minister to speak to a family and friends to bring hope and peace and comfort at the time of death. One verse, one verse used by a world travel evangelist to carry the message of the Christian faith around the world. What is it? What is it about this one verse? What is it about these 24 words in the English Standard Version? And I would submit to you that what it is is this. That encapsulated in these 24 words, encapsulated in this one verse is the gospel. But what is the gospel? What do we mean when we say gospel? Some have called John 3.16 the gospel in a nutshell or the gospel um, in miniature. But what do we mean when we talk about the gospel? Well, the gospel was a biblical word. We read that word in the New Testament. We read, for instance, in Mark chapter 1, verse 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. We read in Romans chapter 1, verse 1, that Paul said he was set apart as an apostle for the gospel of God. He says in Romans 1, 16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God unto salvation to all who believe, to the Jew first, but also to the Gentile. What do we mean when we talk about the word gospel? What well, is a word interestingly, that comes over to us into the English language from the original language the New Testament was written in, and it comes over in the word evangel. It has a prefix, it has a root word, and the prefix means this, it means good. And the root word means news. That's what gospel means. It means good news. But what is it the good news of? We sometimes say, I have some good news to share with you. But what does, what does the scripture mean when it talks about the gospel? What's it mean it's the good news of? Well, Romans 1.16. 
the power of God unto salvation. The good news is about salvation. And uh, we might ask the question, well, salvation, what do we mean by salvation? Saved. What's it mean to be saved? Saved from what? Saved to what? There was a fellow who was the minister at the 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia. His name was James Montgomery Boyce. And he has uh, written, a, he wrote a number of commentaries on a number of books in the Bible. But one of the uh, commentaries that he wrote was a five-volume set on the Gospel of John. I heard one time it took him eight years to preach to the Gospel of John. Now, that's not moving very fast. But he would preach through the... And these five volumes, really, were the sermons, a collection of sermons that he had on the different texts that he preached on in the Gospel of John. Well, in one of those commentaries, I read uh, an illustration that he gave... And it was the illustration in which uh, there was a, a, an Anglican bishop in England, and he was traveling either by trolley or on, uh, on a train, and there was a young girl, and uh, she was out. She was uh, with the Salvation Army, and she was out bearing witness. She was out evangelizing. And she was going around and asking people, are you saved? And she came up to the bishop, and she didn't know who the bishop was, which really doesn't make any difference. May as well ask a bishop as anybody. And said to him, sir, are you saved? And the bishop looked up at her, I guess perhaps with a little twinkle in his eye, and he answered her in three Greek words, which was all Greek to her, literally. But those three Greek words, he answered, he was saying to her, I have been saved, I am being saved, and I will be saved. Now, perhaps we don't think of salvation in that way, but it's a rich term. And we talk about uh, Romans chapter 5, verse 1, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have been saved, but it's the beginning of life. In this passage that we read to you, Jesus is talking about being born again. And we have new life in Christ. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, he, all things are new. And we begin, as it were, as it said in the uh, one song that we sang, it's a pilgrimage. And uh, along this pilgrimage, there are trials and tribulations and temptations. But by the grace of God and, and being indwelt by the Holy Spirit, we can make progress in the Christian life. It's not that we will ever, ever live perfectly. And we have to come daily and we have to confess our sins. And if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of those sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. But we can and we do make progress. John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace, was involved in the slave trade, but he came to faith in Jesus Christ and his life changed. 
But he could say, as a believer, he could say, I'm not what I ought to be. I'm not what I want to be. I'm not what I hope to be in a future life. But I am what I am by the grace of God. And I'm not what I used to be. We can make progress. But when we look at the passage here, when we look at other scriptures, we are pilgrims on a journey, and this world is not our final home. We are on our way to a heavenly home. Jesus says in John 14, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you so. But I go and prepare a place for you that where I am, there you may be also. Jesus speaks here, or the passage speaks here, of everlasting life. Saved. And encapsulated in the 16th verse is the good news of salvation. And I want us to look at that just for a few moments this morning. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Notice the first two words. For God. For God. The good news of the gospel is rooted and grounded in who God is and what God has done. It's not rooted and grounded in you or in me. It is rooted and grounded from beginning to end in who God is and what he's done. Salvation, we might put it this way, we might put it in, the, in a biblical phrase. Salvation is of the Lord. And think about that. Let me give a couple of illustrations, a couple from the Old Testament. You remember Jonah? Jonah, that most reluctant missionary who was supposed to go to Nineveh and cry out, he had 40 days and Nineveh will perish, and he gets on a ship going to Tarshish. Well, the Lord has something to say about that. And he raises up that great storm and the sailors try to go to, to shore, but they cannot. And God is sovereign over the wind and the waves. And eventually they throw Jonah overboard and what happens? Well, there is a, a fish there that God has prepared to swallow Jonah and he's in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. What's he do? Well, I think he does what perhaps all of us would do. He prayed. And when it comes to the end of that prayer, he has something to say. But I want you to get the picture of Jonah here. Jonah is, 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 is hopeless. He cannot save himself. He, he's, in a, he's in bondage. He cannot free himself. He's there because of his sin, his disobedience to God. And unless God does something, he's hopelessly lost. And at the end of his prayer praying from the belly of the great fish. This is what he says, salvation is of the Lord. And the next verse says this, that the Lord spoke to the fish and the fish deposited Jonah on the shore. The greatest deliverance in the Old Testament is uh, the Exodus. And it's about a people who were enslaved for over 400 years. And they were enslaved, as one person has put it, to the mightiest military and political power of the day, and they were powerless to free themselves from that slavery. 
And yet God had promised. Let every man prove to be a liar, but God be true. God had promised to Abraham that after some 400 years, he would bring his people out of bondage. And he does so. He raises up Moses, and Moses comes. And Moses is used of God to bring that people out. And they come to the Red Sea, and the the Egyptians are bearing down on them, and yet God miraculously parts the Red Sea so that his people go go across. And the same Red Sea brings judgment upon the enemies of God's people. What do they do? What do they do? What do the people do after that event? Exodus 15 says they sang a song. I'm so glad we have a ministry of music within the life of the church. I am so glad uh, for those who are gifted with such But I am so glad that we have something to sing about because we have someone to sing about and what he's done for us. They sang a song and they sang a song to the Lord who had triumphed gloriously. Salvation is of the Lord. And when we come to sin and death and Satan, who shall deliver us from those enemies? Who shall save us? And what the scripture points us to is that salvation is of the Lord. It's not of us. I said I would make reference to other verses in this passage. In this passage, Jesus is talking to a man of the Pharisees by the name of Nicodemus. Here is somebody who is trying to live his life, as it were, uh, meticulously according to the law. He would have been respected in the community. He's, he's called not only a teacher in Israel, he's called the teacher in Israel. He has the pedigree, he has the piety, he has the position, he has all this. What does Jesus say to him right off the bat? Jesus says, Nicodemus, you must be born again. As if to say, Nicodemus, you spiritually are as dead as a doornail. With all your piety, with your position, with all of your theological degrees, you must be born again if you hope ever to see the kingdom of God, let alone enter into it. Salvation is of the Lord. Salvation is not turning over a new leaf. Salvation is a new life. any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away and the new has come. I want you to notice then what God has done and what he is like. It says, for God so loved the world. Literally, in the original it says, in this manner, loved God the world. The word love comes in the original before God. Now, that's not too unusual in the Greek language, but it does. And I want you to notice who's doing the loving here. You you can know a scripture by heart. But blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of sinners, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and all his law doth he meditate Meditate. 
what the scripture is saying for God, the creator, the ruler, the sustainer of heaven and earth. No one less loved. That's who's doing the loving here. We love other people, but we only do so in a finite way. But it says here that God loved the world. God loved. I got to go all the way back to junior high, and that's going to take me back just a few, few years, <clears throat> where we learned those parts of speech. And we learned that a verb was a word of action or a state of being. Amazar was were. And here we have a verb of action. Here is something that God does. He loves. Notice, would you please, the object of God's love. He loves the world. Now, the word world can be used a variety of time, uh, in a variety of ways. In John's gospel, it could refer to the created order. Uh, there is a sense in which the created order will be redeemed one day. But I think in this passage of Scripture, within the context of it, when he talks about God loving the world, he's talking about God loving the world of men, of human beings. But would you notice something about the world? It's not a morally neutral place. It's a place where people are fallen and broken by sin. And yet God is said to love sinful men. Men and women and boys and girls. He loved. I think it was Edmund Clowney who said, you know, when you look at this verse, it's not the bigness of the love. The whole world. But it's the badness of the world that makes this passage of Scripture stand out. If God loved good people, what else would you expect? But Paul tells us in Romans, while we were yet helpless, ungodly, sinners, even his enemies, Romans 5, God commended his love towards us. I've heard of conditional love. Uh, read somewhere there's uh, different kinds of love. There's the if kind of love. If you do this, I'll love you. If you do this, I'll love you. Or there's the because of kind of love. Because you do this, I love you. Because you're this, I love you. And then there's the in spite of kind of love. Here's the in spite of kind of love. In spite of the fact. You don't deserve it. I don't deserve it. God commended his love. And he loved the world. And the scripture tells us not only did he love the world, he demonstrated that in giving his son. Remember Genesis 22 where God called Abraham to take his son? And then there's the description, his only son. Take your son, your only son, your only son who you love and take him up to the place where I show you and there you shall sacrifice him and in obedience, he goes, and on the way, his son says, well, we have the fire, we have the wood. What about the sacrifice? Don't worry. God himself will provide the sacrifice. And God, uh, as it, after he lays his son on the altar and is about to bring that knife down, God stays that, 
And God provides for him a substitute. Well, not too far from there, it said that's where Solomon would later build his temple where the sacrifices were offered. And not too far far from there is a place called Calvary. And there, the eternal Son of God who became man and who dwelt among us and was full of grace and truth, who was tempted like as we, yet he was without sin. That spotless Lamb of God, God so loved that he gave. He didn't spare his Son, but he delivered him up that we might have life and have it more abundantly. God loved the world, and he he gave. Love gives, but you can't outgive God. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And we write in, in Numbers 21, I was so appreciative that you picked out that scripture, brother. Because we need to see Christ in the Old Testament. Because the Old Testament is about Christ. That one who was lifted up. And this one that we speak of in John 3.16 was lifted up. Lifted up was he to die. According to the scripture, he was put to death. Paul tells us he was put to death for our transgressions. He was raised for our justification. Here is the one who would suffer and die as the Lamb of God, pure, spotless, and who would pay in full the penalty of our sin, who could say as he hung on the cross, a cry of triumph, it is finished, it's paid for in full. That whoever believes in him, whoever trusts in him, whoever is, is more than just aware of what it says about him and, and, and knows the facts about him, but knows him, who, who is more than just a little interested in this figure uh, called Jesus, but who is trusting in him alone for salvation. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to your cross I cling, says the hymn writer. Whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. I say to you this morning, salvation is of the Lord. Who are you trusting in for your salvation this morning? Are you trusting in him alone as he is offered in the gospel? The first membership question of the church is, as you confess yourself to be a sinner in the sight of God, justly deserving his displeasure without hope, except in his love and mercy. And do you trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, the Savior of sinners, as he is offered in the gospel? Whom are you trusting? And if you're trusting in him and you know John 3, 16, then what? I'm going to close with this. I mentioned that my wife and I and two girls went to Mexico and there we had to speak Spanish. Well, to speak Spanish, they sent us to Spanish language school to try and learn some Spanish. And that Spanish language school was in Edinburgh, Texas. And that Spanish language school also served as a Bible school for Spanish-speaking students from Mexico and Central and South America and from other places in the United States where there were Spanish-speaking 
people who wanted to go and study the Bible in Spanish. And there was a fellow there who was from Philadelphia, and he had been a member of a gang in Philadelphia. And there was a young girl who was concerned about him, concerned about his his salvation. And she tried to talk to him, and he would, I guess, put her off and and ask her questions. And and she would say, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. The only thing I know is John 3.16. Encapsulated in that one verse, you can share the gospel the good news of Jesus Christ with friends, with family, with people that you come in contact with. Because here is the gospel in a nutshell, in miniature. Can you say more? Oh, I'm sure there's more that you could say about it. But here is the good news apart from which there is no other good news. He that believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because of why? Because he's not trusted in what God has done that we might be saved and have life. Let's pray. Father, Thank you for your word. We pray now that the one who so inspired John would apply it to our hearts and to our lives. Wherever it needs to be applied, the conviction of sin and of righteousness and of judgment, that we have sinned and fallen short, that there is none righteous, but there is one who was righteous, who died in our place, bearing our sins in his body on the cross. And the judgment that we should have endured, he endured in our place. These things we ask and we pray in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen.